right. Good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to be able to bring God's Word to us this morning. Uh, Would you open your Bibles to John 16? If you're visiting with us, we've been studying through the book of John this year, um, and we have been uh, so blessed. Have you, haven't you been blessed to be studying this book together, to be hearing from the Lord, hearing from Jesus himself, hearing about Jesus? Um, it has been such a blessing to do that, and I pray that this morning will not disappoint us again, that, that the Lord will, uh, would, would bless the preaching of his word. Last week we saw in uh, the beginning of chapter 16, we saw Jesus encourage the disciples with the promise that he would send the Holy Spirit as an intentional resource to help them endure life in this world after his death. And now this week, Jesus is going to be preparing his disciples for the dreadful sorrow that they will feel as they witness his crucifixion at Calvary. It's about to happen. We're we're almost there. But he also is going to promise them that this resurrection, his resurrection after his death, that that's going to be the thing that will transform sorrow, their temporary sorrow, into lasting joy. And that will give them the ability to bring requests directly to God the Father in prayer, and that that will also be a means of joy for them. So let's turn our attention to the text. John chapter 16, verse 16 through 24. This is God's word. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do come to you and we ask. We ask for you to bless the preaching of your word. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be moving among us, to be illuminating your word to us, to be warming our affections as we hear your word, as we hear Christ preached. Lord, we ask for these things. Lord, would you, would you be here among us? Lord, this is a moment that we have not had at all this week. It's been, it, this moment is unlike any other moment where you are going to address 
the corporate gathering of your people here of this local body with the preaching of your word, Lord. And so so we, we, we humble ourselves in reverence to this moment, Lord, to you in this moment, Lord, and we, we ask for you to speak to us, Lord. We pray for your glory and in your son's name, amen. This morning uh, in John 16, we're nearing the end of what's been uh, commonly referred to as Jesus's farewell discourse or the upper room discourse, another way that people talk about this last, uh, these last several verses that we've been in. Everything we've been studying over the last several weeks, I think we started, I'll look back, it was like in May, Um, we started back in chapter 13. It's all been a part of this one single monologue that Jesus has been giving to his disciples after dinner the Lord's Supper dinner that they celebrated together in the upper room uh, on the night before his crucifixion. And and that's an important detail for us to remember uh, throughout this whole discourse, but especially for this this morning's uh, text. Because at this point in the narrative, the disciples, they didn't know. Just remember this. The disciples, they don't know when the crucifixion is going to happen. They hardly even seem to be able to wrap their heads around the very concept of Jesus being crucified. Much less are they, are they getting that it's about to happen to them. And, and sure, you know, Jesus, he's been talking about it more and more frequently these days. But, I mean, I think it's kind of starting to freak them out a little bit. And, and just, it's helpful. Remember, unlike us, they, they can't just turn ahead in their Bibles a couple of pages and be able to see what's coming around the corner. They're hearing and processing all that Jesus has been telling them in real time with only the facts that they can see with their own eyes and the history that they had learned from God's word, and maybe whatever vague hints Jesus would sometimes seem to like plop in their laps. Uh, And on this Thursday night after supper, it just seems like their brains are on overload. I mean, just think of some of the highlights from the evening so far. Someone, well, not just someone, one of the disciples is about to betray Jesus. And Jesus is troubled about that. He's not very happy about that. Uh, Then Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be going somewhere. But he informs them that wherever he's about to go, they will not be coming with him. It's kind of like a Bilbo Baggins moment. Uh, and that doesn't sit well with Peter. So, so Peter decides to speak up, but then he immediately regrets that he chose to do that because Jesus then predicts that Peter will actually flat out deny Jesus, not just once, but three times before sunrise. So then Thomas speaks up, trying to get Jesus to spill where he's going, but he also gets corrected, apparently because he should have already known where Jesus was going, which adds to the mystery of the moment. And then Jesus kind of snaps at Philip for asking to see the Father, almost like he's frustrated that Philip still hasn't gotten the fact that Jesus, all this time, has been saying, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. So so it's a very tense atmosphere. (laughs) Everyone seems to be a little bit on edge. Morale seems to be tanking. Everyone's heads and hearts, they seem to be kind of spinning out of control. And that's the atmosphere in the room for, where Jesus, for what Jesus is about to say in our text and what we just read. Jesus begins in verse 16, and it's almost kind of like a riddle he starts with. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. Well, they had heard that before. Jesus had prophesied about him going away and uh, him being killed. So it wasn't like necessarily news, but I think it made them wonder, like, is this really about to happen? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. It was almost like you could hear sniffles in the room. Jesus was their friend. They had spent the last three years with him. They had walked all over the Galilean countryside with him. 
watching him heal the sick and casting out demons, turning water into wine and feeding multitudes, calling out the hypocrisy of the religious authorities. It was exhilarating. Then they'd watch him tenderly care for the poor and the outcasts. I mean, just imagine what it must have been like each night to sit around some person's table or, or maybe around a campfire, trying to, to wrap their minds around everything that they had seen, retelling one another stories of the day of the incredible displays of God's power at work through the ministry of Jesus that they were privileged to witness. But Jesus was more than their friend. He, he was their family, a literal brother to some of them. But they had each left everything to follow him, their jobs, their possessions, their own families. No doubt, they each felt a very deep connection to this man from Nazareth. They were united with him on a level that ran deeper than blood. He was their Messiah. Jesus had sought them out, had handpicked each of them, assembling these 12 kids from Galilee into a band of brothers that would change the world as they proclaimed the good news of repentance of sin and salvation in Christ Jesus alone, they they had bought into this mission and vision. They believed it big time. The Messiah had given purpose to their otherwise boring and meaningless lives. They had believed that he, the Messiah, would finally rescue their nation from the clutches of the Roman Empire. He was going to be the hope that they and their ancestors had been waiting for all this time. But, But now, on a Thursday night in Jerusalem... Jesus was telling them he was about to leave them. Surely there was some mistake or misunderstanding. I mean, the thought of Jesus no longer being with them, it filled their hearts with sadness, despair, worry, fear. But Jesus had more to say. Look at uh, verse 16. And again, a little while... And you will see me. So a little while, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Well, that really clears things up. Um, what, What could this possibly mean? Where on earth would Jesus be going? Why would he be leaving? How long would he be there until he came back? None of it made any sense. But at this point in the evening, the disciples don't seem to have the strength to ask Jesus another question. Look at verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the father, which he had said earlier in chapter 16. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about, but notice who they're talking to. They're talking to one another. And I wonder if any of you knows, know what that feels like to have questions burning in your heart that you know only God can answer. But for one reason or another, maybe good reasons or maybe bad reasons, you just you can't bring yourself to actually ask him, why has my life turned out this way? Why am I not married yet? Why did you let him die? Why weren't you there when I needed you, Lord? How could you let that happen to me? What could possibly be good about this situation? How long am I going to have to be like this? Are you even there, Lord? Do you even care? These are questions that are okay for Christians to ask. We don't have to pretend that we don't have these sorts of sorrows and fears and concerns and longings. God's not afraid of our rawness. He doesn't get intimidated by our vulnerability, our being naked and exposed before him. What's wrong is when we try to hide our true selves from him. 
Remember back in the garden? That's what happened to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? They had disobeyed. They had eaten the forbidden fruit. And then, as God promised, their eyes were opened and they could see both good and evil. They suddenly realized, oh man, we're naked. And that made them feel ashamed. And so they hid themselves from God instead of running to him in repentance. Instead of asking for help from the only one who could provide help for them, they ran away from him. I just wonder, how often do we do that? How often are there questions that we're unwilling to ask the Lord? Maybe because we're embarrassed or ashamed, or maybe just because we're tired of asking. We don't know why the disciples decided to ask one another these questions about what Jesus was saying. But Jesus, we know, had told the disciples a few verses earlier. Look at, look at uh, verse 12 in chapter 16. Uh, he had said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So even though he had more to tell them, they weren't apparently ready to hear anymore because they couldn't bear anymore. And so you know, maybe that convinced them it was probably best not to ask Jesus anything. But then notice what John highlights about Jesus' posture toward them. Look at verse uh, 19. Those first two words, Jesus knew. Might be two of the sweetest words we hear this morning. Jesus knew. The rest of verse 19, Jesus knew. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me again. It reminds me of the garden, God coming to Adam. God is the one that pursues Adam in his nakedness. Jesus knew that this was going to be very difficult for them to hear. Jesus knew that they were having trouble comprehending what he was saying. Jesus knew they were confused. Jesus knew their hearts were troubled. Jesus knew they desperately longed to understand. And Jesus knew that in a little while, literally less than 24 hours, his friends would experience the greatest sorrow they would ever encounter. And he doesn't just fold his arms in disgust that the disciples aren't getting it. He doesn't take offense that they're unwilling to ask him. What does he do? He, he pursues them with patience and compassion and seeks to comfort them. So let that be something that if, if that section I was reading a second ago about just where you might be this morning in terms of questions, let, that, let this verse encourage you. Jesus wants to know you. He, want, he already does know, but he wants you to confess to him, to come to him. So then look at verse 20. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, truly, truly, that, this is Jesus underscoring what he is about to say to them. Kind of like saying, look, look, guys, what I'm going to tell you, it's really, really important. So you need to pay attention to this and take it to heart. Please, don't miss this. Truly, truly, I say to you. And, and what is it that he doesn't want them to miss? What does he say next? He gives them a promise. You will weep and lament. Now, in one sense... We already said this. Jesus already knew how troubled their hearts were. Uh, remember our, in our text last week in verse 6. Look at, look at 16 verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus already knew. They're troubled. He knew that, they had already been, that what he had already been saying to them was weighing very heavy on them. But Jesus also knew, and this is why he's saying you will weep and lament. He also knew 
that there were terrible things that were about to happen to him and to them. He knew that they hadn't seen the worst of it yet. He knew how scared and disoriented they would be in the depths of grief that they were about to experience. He knew they were about to watch the Son of God be betrayed by their fellow disciple Judas, then be handed over to a raging mob before being unjustly and inhumanely persecuted, spit on, beaten, mocked, tortured, whipped until he was unrecognizable as a human. Then he would somehow be expected to march through the city streets with his open wounds exposed to the eyes of anyone looking on, bearing the weight of a wooden splintery cross. And then at the climax of it all, he would be publicly and shamefully nailed to that cross and left to hang there until he died, crucified, betrayed, the the innocent Messiah murdered. And even that wouldn't be the end of their sorrow. Jesus says in verse 20, you will weep and lament, but what does he say next? But the world will rejoice. So so he's saying, you will be weeping, you will be lamenting, your hearts will feel like they're being ripped out of your chest, and just when you think you couldn't feel any more hopeless, the world's going to let out a victory shout. They're going to throw a party. They're going to cheer and laugh right in your face. If you guys who know the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Reminds me of when Aslan is sacrificed on the stone table. Do you remember that scene? Maybe you saw the movie. Um, The white witch stands over Aslan, triumph, kind of beaming from her face. And he's, Aslan, the lion's bound with ropes. They've shaved all his fur off. He's humiliated as a lion. And she proudly declares, tonight the deep magic will be appeased, but tomorrow we will take Narnia forever. And then she leans down to Aslan in that knowledge, despair, and die. And she stabs him. And then what does she say after that? Anybody remember? The great cat is dead. Victory. Everybody's torches are flying in the air. They're all letting out a raucous shout. That's what it's going to be like for Jesus' enemies. Every single evil one who opposes him, the demons, the earthly rulers, the authorities and religious leaders, the Jesus haters, the scoffers, the proud, the liars, the self-centered, even Satan himself, everyone who longs for Jesus Christ to be crucified in that day when he dies will rejoice that the Son of God has finally fallen. But, like Aslan, Jesus will roar back to life as he reverses the power of death. Jesus says, yes, it's not going to look good. It will appear as though we have lost. You will weep and lament. You will mourn and grieve. All will seem hopeless. Verse 20, you will be sorrowful, he goes on to say, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Okay, we as Christians, we know the outcome of the story. But remember, think about this as the disciples in the upper room. Hold on, Jesus. You sound like a lunatic. What are you talking about? I mean, think about what you just said. All this grief and sorrow, it's going to suddenly turn to joy? You're just going to rise from the dead and all of a sudden everything's going to be right? 
You're telling me that one moment we'll all be filled with despair while the world's rejoicing, and the next moment we'll all be dancing in the streets? How, how is this going to happen? I mean, I know I, I've watched you do miracles, but how, Lord, how? Sorrow doesn't just instantaneously turn into joy, or does it? And that's why I think Jesus shares this next illustration with them. Look in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, real sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Why? For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So what Jesus is doing is showing them that it, this is something that we see even in our human life. We can be experiencing incredible pain and suffering and then in an instant joy. And we have many moms here among us. A pregnant woman endures nine grueling months before getting to experience the joy of having her newborn. You have morning sickness and back pains and awkward conversations with strangers and swollen feet and whacked out taste buds and karate kicks to your internal organs and all that before the contradictions, the contradictions, before the contractions and the labor pains. Until finally the day comes for the little one to be born and then mom descends into what is, has to be some of the most intense pains a human can endure. Maybe just shy of crucifixion. And full disclosure, my wife, she didn't deliver our children naturally, so I don't actually know from personal experience what that's like for you ladies. And no, not that I'd actually know from personal experience. That's not what I mean. I, obviously, you, yeah, you, get, you, you know what I'm talking about. Oh. I do know that my wife had to get a needle the diameter of a bubble tea straw stabbed in the back of her spine. So God has given mothers incredible pain tolerance. <laughs> I don't even want to go play paintball. Um, but, but just let's just think about this. So what, what is the first emotion that a mom feels when she finally lays eyes on her newborn baby? It isn't a longing for more pain medicine. She no longer remembers the anguish, Jesus says. All she cares about is, ex is experiencing the joy of holding that baby. She wants to feel his skin, to smell his hair, to kiss his cheeks, to see his little wiggly toes and his little lips. She wants to watch him smile and stretch and yawn. The excruciating pain of childbirth that she just was enduring is now eclipsed by the joy that a human being has been born. In a moment... What had been so exhausting is now exhilarating. What felt like the brink of death has now brought the blessing of delight. And Jesus tells his disciples, that's what my death and resurrection is going to be like. My hour, yes, it's finally here. I'm going to be killed. And that means I won't be with you for a little while. And that's going to be scary and sad and confusing. You will be sorrowful, he says in verse 20, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Death will not have the final say. We sing a song here on Sunday mornings called Rejoice. The third verse says this, all our sickness, all our sorrows, Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still. What's he doing? Turning tragedy to triumph, turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle. So take heart, Christians, and stand amazed. Rejoice. Come lift your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of our praise. On Friday, Jesus' death will feel like a victory to the world. But on Sunday, suddenly everything will be turned upside down. 
Edward Clink says it this way in his commentary on John's gospel. What the disciples first received as death and loss in weeping and mourning has itself become the source of their joy. And what the world first received as victory and joy has become itself the source of their defeat. And if you're here this morning, and and you would not call yourself a Christian, so young kids, that would be you, adults who are are not professing believers in Christ, I'm I'm talking to you, 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 the Bible say, would, would fall into the category of the world. You are what the Bible calls an unbeliever. You are unrighteous. And, and for you, Jesus' resurrection, it's not a joyous event. We're, we're so glad that you would be here with us this morning to gather in God's church to hear his word preached. Kids, we're, we're glad that you sit in here every Sunday with your parents and listen to God's word preached. But if you have not placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are not a Christian. You are not the beneficiary of the life and joy that his resurrection provides. So Jesus' resurrection, not a joyous event. It should actually terrify you that Jesus is conquering death in this way. Because it actually, his resurrection, it proves everything that Jesus claimed about himself to be true. And if you don't receive his invitation to turn from your sins, if you won't stop putting your trust in your own good works, if you're not willing to surrender to his authority and lordship, then a day is coming when judgment will come for you by the hand of the risen lamb. His disciples won't be the ones weeping and lamenting on that day. It'll be everyone else who didn't turn to Christ. And... and we, we love you. We are glad you're here. We don't want that to be you. So turn to Christ. Jesus goes on in verse 22 to encourage his disciples, to continue encouraging disciples. So he had said, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will, tur- will turn into joy. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. Remember, Jesus had uh, had begun back in verse 16 by predicting that it would be the disciples who would see him again. Remember, look look at verse 13. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So it's the disciples who would see him again. But notice here in verse 22 that it says that it will be him who sees them again. You see that difference there? Um, that that is the reason he kind of locates the reason for their hearts to rejoice in that truth. I will see you again and, and your hearts will rejoice. He says, Uh, and, and isn't that exactly what happens? Maybe, maybe if you're familiar with the book of John, you'll remember in John 20, maybe let's go ahead and turn there. Look, turn, turn a few chapters ahead. Remember this is what the disciples don't have the ability to do, but we have the ability to do it this morning. So we're going to do it. John chapter 20, look at verse 19. So remember, verse 22, it told us, uh, I will see you again. Look at this. Starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, 
This is after Jesus' uh, after his crucifixion, after he's been raised from the dead, and they, he's missing. They don't know where he is. Uh, so they're locked. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples... Oh, sorry. Then... Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So that's exactly what uh, chapter 16, what, what Jesus had said to them, right? I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. That, that's literally what happens later on. Over the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus will visit each one of his disciples. They will get to see him again. They will be reunited with their Savior just as he had promised. And it will give them great joy. But it will only be a temporary joy, won't it? Because Jesus, we know, he's going to leave again. He will eventually ascend to the Father. And they, as he had predicted back in verse 16, they will no longer see him. So where will this lasting joy Jesus had promised, where's it going to come from? The kind of joy that no one would be ever able to take away from them. Well, let's look back and remember what Jesus had been saying earlier to his disciples. So we looked forward, let's look backward. Look back in John 16, verse 7. Jesus had told them that he was sending the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the help, if I do not ascend to the Father, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then look at verse 13. Look at what Jesus is saying the Spirit will do. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. That's important. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Maybe another way of saying that is he's going to show you me. He's going to help you see me. Last, uh, in verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he's going to help them see. Lasting joy is going to come from a deeper and more full, uh, full sight of the Savior. And that deeper sight is going to be provided by the Holy Spirit. I think this is perhaps another layer of the meaning uh, in verse 16, when Jesus had said, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. We, we can't really see this in our English translations, uh, but for any of you guys who might know Greek, I don't, but I've, I'm reading guys who are helping me to see the Greek. Um, in the Greek, Jesus is actually using a play on words here. He's actually using two different words for you will see. And, and I have to think that that's probably at least in part why the disciples are having such a hard time figuring out what in the world he was talking about. Uh, because he's using these two different words. The first, we'll see, that he uses uh, in the first part, you, you will see me no longer. That first, we'll see, the Greek word there, it means to observe as like a spectator. But the second, we'll see, and again, a little while, and you will see me. That second we'll see actually means, it's just a slight variation, but it actually means to perceive as one who actually apprehends or catches the essence of what one is seeing. So Jesus, in a very real sense, I think, is saying, in a little while, guys, your physical eyes, they're not going to be able to see me anymore. I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be buried in a tomb. But then, not long after that, another little while, you're going to see me again because I'm going to resurrect myself from the dead. 
But when you see me like that, you're not going to be seeing me in the way that you're used to. I'm going to be walking through walls and disappearing and stuff. There'll be even moments when I'll be walking and talking right in front of you and you won't even know it's me until I reveal myself to you. So it's going to be awesome, but it's going to be really different than what you're used to. But then I think on another level, it's as if Jesus is saying, in a little while, you're no longer going to see me as you've seen me with your physical eyes. I'm going to ascend to the Father. You won't see me any longer. But then after a little while, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on you at Pentecost. And when I do, the Holy Spirit's going to help you to see like you've never seen before. You're going to really see. And this new way of seeing is going to make everything that I've been saying to you finally make sense. And if you go back in earlier in John, John 2, uh, remember the disciples said it wasn't until after Jesus had resurrected that they finally understood what he was talking about. So I think that's, that's partly what Jesus is saying here. But, so that's two different ways. I think there might be a third way even that we can interpret verse 16. That there's really this final and ultimate level that Jesus' words are operating on. Isn't Jesus telling his disciples and, and telling us this morning... In a little while, you aren't going to see me. I'm going to ascend to be with my Father, and I will send the Holy Spirit. And in a real sense, you're going to experience lasting joy. But all your problems, they aren't going to suddenly disappear. You still are going to suffer. You're still going to be persecuted. You're still going to get sick. You're still going to feel the, the grief and pain of loss. Evil will still exist and will sometimes even seem to be winning the day. But again... In a little while, you will see me. I will return to you. And in that day, I will finally turn all of the temporary sorrows you experience into eternal joy. You will no longer hunger. You will no longer thirst. You will no longer weep. You'll not only see me, you'll, you'll be with me forever. Let this promise, I think Jesus is telling us this morning, let this promise of eternal security and hope and rest fill your hearts with joy, joy that no one will be able to take from you. Isn't this the kind of joy-filled anticipation that we see all throughout the New Testament in, in the saints of God? 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Affliction and joy. Look at Acts 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And what do the apostles do? Weep and moan? No, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Joy that cannot be taken away from them. Or Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. And what else? Joy in the Holy Spirit. Or James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your joy will be full. Or even Paul himself in 2 Corinthians very personally said, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. I don't know about you, but I read stories like that, and 
Man, I just see such a, a chasm between the hearts of the saints of the New Testament believers and my own selfish, joyless heart oftentimes. I long to have that kind of joy and faith and perseverance and hope that those believers have. Don't you? Don't you want that kind of joy? How is this kind of joy possible? Where does that kind of faith-filled, untarnishable joy even come from? Well, I think that's why Jesus, in our final two verses, turns our attention to the topic of prayer. The disciples, they had spent the last three years with Jesus, and he, he was right there by their side. What a joy that must have been. At any moment, for any reason, they could just lean over to Jesus and ask him whatever they wanted to. And immediately they could receive an answer, even if sometimes it wasn't always the one they wanted to hear. But now Jesus is telling them a day is going to come where there would be no more need to ask questions. All that he had been saying to them, everything that he had been alluding to, they would finally get it, really get it. The Holy Spirit would guide them into understanding the truth about Jesus, and they would see him like never before. But now that Jesus was going to be in heaven with the Father, what would fellowship with God look like? God's people had always been able to pray to the Father, so that's not going to be new. Even Jesus himself, when he taught his disciples how to pray in Luke 11, he began that way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what's going to be different about this day, this new day? Well, this new day, because of the finished work of Christ and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the disciples and us, we would be able to do something that we had never been able to do before. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. No more need to ask questions of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father... In my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Okay, so what is Jesus saying here? Ask, and you will receive, your joy may be full. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Does Jesus really mean that? Whatever we ask the Father, he's going to give it to us? So I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. I'm taking a little bit of a chance because this may be a lesser known movie. Uh, but Muppets Most Wanted. Anybody seen that before? Like two of y'all? Three of y'all? Okay. Uh, well, you know the Mupp Jim Henson Muppets. You know Miss Piggy and Kermit and all those guys, right? So I'll just kind of ex give you the scene a little bit here. So they're... The, the antagonist in the movie is this Russian villain named Constantine. And... Constantine is an identical twin to Kermit the Frog, except for his Russian accent and a mole that's like a sticker on his face. Um, and so Constantine tricks Miss Piggy into thinking that he's the real Kermit by, like I said, take, taking the mole off of his face and then um, schmoozing her with this song that he sings to her uh, where he tells her that she can ask him for anything and he'll give it to her. I can give you anything. I'm not going to sing it. I can give you anything you want. Give you anything you need. I'll make your dreams come true. Give you anything you want. Fulfill your fantasies. I'll make your dreams come true. You want a unicorn? I'll give it to you. You want a puppy dog? I'll give it to you. You want an ice cream cone? I'll give it to you. You want a banking loan? I'll give it to you. He goes through all these things. At the very end, he's like, you want to go to the moon? I'll uh, maybe figure out how to do that later. Um, but anyway, so that, this is not the kind of ask whatever you want and and he'll give it to you that we're talking about. There's a crucial prepositional phrase in that sentence that we can't overlook. 
Anybody know what it is? In my name. name. Jesus says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So then, that means we need to make sure we know what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. It isn't just a little filler phrase we tack on to the end of our prayers or pepper throughout our prayers to try to make them sound a little bit more religious. No, praying in Jesus' name means that we pray as those who have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. It means that we pray as those who now abide with Jesus, as those who have had the undeserved righteousness applied to us by Jesus, as those who long to do the will of Jesus and to see the glory of Jesus. As we pray in Jesus' name, we pray according to the authority and the power and the permission that alone belongs to Jesus. And we acknowledge that it is Jesus who has given us access to the Father in the first place, purchased for us by his blood alone. It's no wonder the Father inclines himself to meet our requests when we bring them in the name of his Son. Because Jesus has told us this, the Father loves the Son. They are one with one another. And because we now bear Christ's name, we can bring our requests to God the Father, and he sees them as though it's his Son asking for them. He delights to bless us with answers to our requests because he delights to bless his Son. It gives him glory to do so. That doesn't mean we can ask whatever we want to serve our own glory, our own selfishness. It means that we ask anything we want according to the name of Jesus for his glory. And that doesn't mean that God just makes all our problems go away. In fact, quite the opposite happens in this life. It's often through the very trials God sends us that he fills us with joy. John Newton captured that idea well in his hymn, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And it's a lengthy hymn. It's about seven stanzas. But I, I really want to read these to us because I think, I think the way that John processes through trials and his praying, I think it's instructive. So let me read this to us. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. That sounds like a good prayer. Might more of his salvation know. And seek more earnestly his face. Again, great things to pray. Twas he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power subdue my sins. And give me rest. Instead of this... He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yet more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied. "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou mayst find thy all in me.'" 
The Apostle Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1. It's a familiar verse to us. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For what purpose? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. For who? For you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, great, Lord. What about all the problems? In this you rejoice, Christian. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to do what? To result in praise, in joy, in rejoicing, in praise and in glory and in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the sight of him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. We've not seen Jesus. We're going to see him. The Holy Spirit helps us see him. Though you, have not, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask. And you will receive that your joy may be full. The resurrection transforms temporary sorrow into lasting joy. And faith-driven prayer drives us to pray. So that's how we conclude today. Sorrow may be staring you in the face. Lasting joy is yours in Christ by the revelation of the Spirit and also held out for you for one day to be totally experienced when we're with him in glory. And as we get to that day, we need to be Christians who ask, who pray, who run to our Father, knowing that he wants, in the name of Jesus, knowing that he wants to bless us, to answer his children, answer the requests of his children. So let's pray toward that end. Lord, thank you for this text. Lord, thank you for, um, thank you, Jesus, for your care for your people. Thank you, Father, for uh, instructing John to write down these things for, uh, for our benefits that we, in 2023, we might be able to, to reflect on this moment that happened that Thursday night and and that we might be able to be strengthened in our own temporary sorrow. To look forward to a permanent, lasting, eternal joy that's kept in heaven for us. Lord, and, and that we also would be reminded that it's our privilege and our posture to be people who pray. Who don't try to figure out life on our own. Who don't just try to ignore difficulty, ignore pain, try to pad ourselves as best we can from 
from all the difficulties and the evil in the world, Lord, but who, who rest secure, who are able to rejoice in the midst of trial because we, we are communing in fellowship with our Father who blesses us, fills us with joy. Lord, so thank you. Thank you for this word. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, that, that this would be something that you are teaching us, that, that we are growing in. Lord, that the chasm that we see in the saints of old and our own hearts, Lord, is shrinking day by day. Lord, that we are learning to trust you, that we are, we are cooperating with you, that we are depending upon you. Lord, would you be doing this in us, I pray, Lord. And for any of us here who, who have not professed you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that they would turn, that they would hear, um, hear Jesus calling out to them with the, the invitation for true joy. Lord, as we turn our attention to you in song, as we, as we stand together and as we lift our voices to, together, as we join our collective voices into one voice to declare the truths that we're going to sing here in a second, Lord, would you be glorified? Would you stir our affections for you, Lord? Would you, even now in this moment, we ask, Lord, fill us, fill your church with joy in the truth and hope of the gospel. Lord, and we ask I just pray that every time we, we pray at the end of a prayer, when we think about this sentence that I was about to say, we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that, that we'd remember this verse, that it is in Jesus' name that we pray to the Father, and that it is in Jesus' name that you respond in blessing to us, Lord. So receive glory as we sing in your name. Amen.